One of my favorite binge watches of the past year was the Golden Globe winning series on Netflix called The Queen's Gambit. Have you seen it? For those of you who haven't, it's the story of Beth Harmon, a girl whose life looks to be tragically ruined when a car accident leaves her orphaned at age nine. It's the 1950s, and Beth gets placed in this very stern orphanage for girls, a place where everyone's hopes for adoption are poundingly real, but that kind of rescue rarely comes. The kids are sedated with daily doses of meds, a habit that Beth sadly never kicks for herself. And yet despite the darkness of all this, there are a few rays of light. Beth is befriended by a bold girl named Jolene who protects and encourages her. And in the basement of that orphanage, the resident janitor, a man by the name of Mr. Scheibel, introduces Beth to the game of chess. While Beth loses very badly and often at the start, it turns out that she doesn't just have a good mind for this game, she is uncommonly brilliant at it. We follow Beth's journey as she takes on tougher and tougher opponents, steadily rising up towards the pinnacle of international competition. The pressure, however, leads Beth deeper and deeper into her addictions and her isolation. And when she finally faces the current world champion, Beth's external foe and her internal demons bring her to a point where she looks to be checkmated. I've often asked myself, why did this story become the number one show with adults on Netflix last year? My theory is that as unrealistic as the story is in places, there's a whole lot about it that feels like a parable of real life. A lot of us relate to the vulnerability of this orphan child. No matter how old we grow in life, there's a part of us that often feels like we're sort of on our own in this journey. We've each suffered our own tragedies and our losses. We're up against all kinds of wily opponents. And like Beth, many of us struggle with anxiety or even with addictions that are strangely intertwined with our gifts. We're all looking for a greater sense of home. Sometimes it also feels to us like life is this massive chess game. We may start out with quite a bit of optimism when we're young, but then the game gets harder and harder still. As the pieces of life move, it becomes more confusing. There are potential pathways we could go down, but also looming perils. We frown and hesitate, wondering if we're making the right move. And then come these periods when the game seems to close down around us. Our path is blocked. Our options are limited. We're losing more and more. Sooner or later, we find ourselves facing rejection, perhaps, or job loss, or maybe divorce, or financial problems. Maybe it's a crisis with our kids, or a serious illness. And if it's not checkmate, we fear that might be close. Maybe some of you are actually there today. 
or you know somebody who is, or maybe it's just around the corner. Perhaps this is why God wanted you to hear this message today. You see, we have got company in this experience. The players in the story of Easter found themselves on just that sort of square. When they'd started out following the charismatic rabbi from Nazareth, the game looked so promising. There were all kinds of places they could and would go. There were so many great moves to be made. As the game wore on, the audience around Jesus just kept getting bigger and bigger. Jesus was an amazing player. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law kept making these moves against him, but Jesus escaped every time. He ran circles around them on the board. When Christ came through the gates of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the crowd went wild. This Passover would be the tournament when Jesus would take down Rome, the reigning world champions. Jesus would be crowned, and all of his disciples knew that they would surely be winners with him. And then in the four days between Palm Sunday and the Passover, the game suddenly turned. Jesus started losing pieces and position. Judas, one of his greatest players, betrayed him. The authorities arrested him. His bishop, Peter, and his knights, Matthew, James, and the other disciples, disappeared from the board altogether. His opponents beat Jesus. I mean, they literally beat him. They stripped him of everything. The crowd who'd cheered him now jeered at his defeat. I guess he wasn't really the champion we thought he would be, some said. Everything Jesus was and stood for and promised died on that cross. It was checkmate. The king was knocked down, laid on his side, put into a bag, stuck in the closet of a borrowed grave. Game over. No one yet understood that all of this was, however, simply God's gambit. In the game of chess, there's a move that is called a gambit. In simplest terms, a gambit is a calculated sacrifice. It's a calculated sacrifice in order to gain an advantage. It usually involves surrendering a piece at the edge of the board in order to move into command at the center of it. And in the final episode of The Queen's Gambit, Beth Harmon performs just such a move. I'll spare you the detail and let you watch the series for yourself. Here's the important part. In a far greater and not fictional game, God did something similar. On Good Friday, God sacrificed his most powerful playing piece, Jesus himself. To everyone watching, the surrender of that royal life appeared to be an unconditional defeat. But it was a calculated sacrifice in order to gain an unconditional advantage for you and for me. You see, as I explained further on Good Friday, the death of Jesus 
was a sacrifice so pure, so huge, that it counterweighed the gravity of everyone's sin. In a cosmic sense, it made up for all the broken covenants, all of the sins that have ever occurred or ever will occur. It was an act of love so heroic and unselfish that everyone who has truly understood it since has voluntarily now sought to give Jesus command of the center of their life's board. I know I have, and I hope you have, or you will. And then to demonstrate that he actually has the power to forgive sins in Jesus' name, that he actually has the authority to be at the center of our lives, God did something even more stunning. He went into the closet we call the tomb. He resurrected the king of kings out of the bag in which he'd been sealed. And he set him on the board again, only now more alive and powerful than ever before. The evidence and experience of that resurrection was so overwhelming to the first Christians that it utterly reoriented the game of life for them. Because they were now convinced that even their worst sins could be forgiven, they became people of amazing grace towards other people. Because they were now certain that God had one more move after death, had played its move, they lived with immense courage and hope in the face of suffering themselves. The early church lived with confidence that all of the evil and corruption and violence and, and pain that happened in this world will one day be defeated, forgotten, wiped off the board because God, they now knew, has the power to start a new game. This is what Easter means. There is forgiveness. There is life beyond death. There is the promise of a whole new world to come. The question I have for you is, do you get that? Are you moving across the board of your life with that sort of grace and courage and confidence? Or are you a bit like Mary on that first Easter morning? The Bible says that when Mary met a man in the garden outside the garden tomb on Easter morning, she did not realize that it was Jesus, the scripture says. She was so filled with grief that she didn't yet get the kind of chess master Jesus was, and that even in the darkness, he was right here with her. Maybe the game of your life is going badly enough right now that it's genuinely hard for you to believe that God is in control and that he's at work for good. It can be like that for a lot of us. It's why one of my other favorite TV shows is the family drama, This Is Us. Maybe you know it. The characters in that particular program are complex and fascinating ones, and they go through the sort of struggles that a whole lot of us do. But what I love most about that show is how the writers play with time. At one point in the show, you're seeing the characters living in the present moment. 
For example, you're seeing the couple we call Kate and Toby rejoicing in the birth of their little baby, Jack. And then shortly later, you watch them coming to terms with the heartbreaking reality that the child they've so longed for has tragically been born blind. And then the story flashes back to a moment in the past. You're seeing this same mother, Kate now, when she's an insecure adolescent with something of a musical gift. But because her gift of singing is not quite as great as her mom, Rebecca's, ability, Kate comes to the conclusion that she'll probably never really produce anything that meaningful from her life. Remembering the earlier scene, you think when you see that, oh no, this this blind baby Kate now has in the present, he's the fulfillment of that foreboding that Kate had in the past. And then the camera shifts again. And you find yourself in this massive concert hall. You're not sure what dimension of time you're in because you don't recognize any of the characters there. What you see is a handsome young man with easy grace striding out across the stage. He stops at a microphone and he begins to sing. And it's a song of such incredible beauty and power. It's a song from a soul so clearly sweetened by suffering and strengthened by love. And as the crowd there goes wild, you realize there's something else about this remarkable star. He's blind. And suddenly you understand this is the future. Your mind flashes back to the depressed girl with the love of singing. It races ahead to the time that she's this fearful mom, hoping she'll find the courage to raise a blind baby, and then it flashes forward to the mysterious and magnificent fruit of all of these eras piling up, of all of these inputs, of all of these ripples of providence playing themselves out across time, and it hits you. Maybe I can't predict the future from where I'm standing today. Maybe there's a purpose that is flowing through everything. Maybe it's moving us toward a beautiful fulfillment. The whole story of the Bible is trying to tell us that. All the Old Testament covenants that point toward something more. The sacrifice on Good Friday. The surprise on Easter Sunday. They're all telling us that life isn't checkers. It's not a linear process. Life is a multi-dimensional chess game in which God is working out his glorious purposes on levels and with angles and with a passion to bless all people that you and I, understandably, cannot fully see. So no matter how the game of life is looking for you right now, 
I hope you will remember and dare to believe God is not out of moves <laughs> and neither are you. The most important move that you could make today is to ask Jesus to come occupy the center of your life. Not the edges of your board, not the box in the closet until you feel like pulling them out in an emergency. Jesus calls your name and mine today as he did Mary's. Going forward from here, let him be your central teacher. And then as your second move, attach yourself to a community of other people who can encourage you as you listen to Christ's teaching and as you seek to apply it to the game of life. In the Queen's Gambit, Beth Harmon doesn't reach her full potential until she lets Jolene and a host of others help her move forward. In This Is Us, none of the main characters make significant progress until they accept the help of family of one kind or another. Jesus understands this about the game of life. It's why his main act after Easter was to establish the church. Not a dusty institution, but a vital community of worship, growth, and service. You are welcome here in that circle. We would just love to connect with you even more often, even more deeply, and learn to follow Jesus' teaching together. That's the good news. That's the invitation this Easter. With sacrificial love and resurrecting power, God has moved toward you. The question is, what is your next move? Please pray with me. Gracious God, we give you thanks and praise that you see us. You know us. And long before we were even aware of your presence, you have been with us. And now, waking up afresh, or maybe even for the very first time, to the reality of who you are, we open our hearts and we make room for you at the center of our lives. And we ask you to now take us and lead us space by space towards that wonderful fulfillment of your good purposes for our life for which you sent Jesus into this world to be our Savior and our teacher. This we pray in Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen.